Hey, 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 everybody. This is Volts for March 17th, 2023. How Big Business Sold America the Myth of the Free Market. I'm your host, David Roberts. In 2010, historians of technology Eric M. Conway and Naomi Oreskes released Merchants of Doubt, How a Handful of Scientists Obscured the Truth on Issues from Tobacco Smoke to Global Warming, a book about weaponized misinformation that proved to be extraordinarily prescient and influential. Now Oreskes and Conway are back with a new book, The Big Myth, How American Business Taught Us to Loathe Government and Love the Free Market. It's about the laissez-faire ideology of unfettered, unrestrained markets, which was invented and sold to the American people in the 20th century through waves of well-funded propaganda campaigns. The success of that propaganda has left the U.S. ill-equipped to address its modern challenges. On March 8th, I interviewed Conway at an event for Seattle's Town Hall, where we discussed the themes of the book, the hold free market ideology still has over us, and the prospects for new thinking. The organizers of the event were kind enough to allow me to share the recording with you as an episode of Volts. So, enjoy. Good evening, everybody. My name is Maine Castillo. I'm Town Hall's program manager. On behalf of the staff here at Town Hall Seattle and our friends at Finney Books, it's my pleasure to welcome you to our presentation with Eric Conway and David Roberts. Conway's new book, The Big Myth, is the subject of tonight's talk. Please join me in welcoming Eric Conway and David Roberts. Hey, everybody. Thanks. I'm just going to uh, jump right in. Several things I'd like to get into, but just to start, one of the things that really the book really gets across well, I thought, which I don't know that I fully appreciated, is the extent to which this idea of unfettered, unregulated, free capitalism is an invention of the 20th century. It's not what capitalism, you know, the the the, the founders and architects of capitalism it very much goes against their larger philosophy and their larger kind of moral sentiments. And the way it does this is by elevating property rights, basically trying to, they call it the indivisibility thesis, that, that property rights and political freedom are, are one and the same and any limitation on property rights is de facto a limitation on political freedom. That's new. That's, that was not uh, original to capitalism. So maybe talk a little bit about property rights and how they, sort of what the pivot uh, these groups did with that concept in the 20th century, in the early 20th century. Okay, so that's a jump forward from a book that starts with child labor laws um, <laughs> in the 19th century. Um, what I think you're bringing up is the tripod of freedom that the National Association of Manufacturers concocts in the late 1930s as part of their effort to undo the New Deal of the Roosevelt administration. And the idea of the tripod of freedom was, if you think about a three-legged stool, there's what they would call industrial freedom or business freedom, religious freedom, and political freedom are the three legs of the stool. So if you remove industrial freedom, businessmen's freedom to do what they want, then the stool falls. And this is a slippery slope argument that equates business freedom with the other two First Amendment freedoms. That's what they spent a decade and millions of dollars of 1930s dollars promoting through billboard campaigns and, and materials made for schools and movies and so forth um, in order to try to convince the public that, that that's the American way, um, even though it is a pure invention. In the 19th century, of course, lots of business was regulated and the corporate form itself was primarily a, a tool used by states. States would create a corporation to accomplish a th thing like the Erie Canal Corporation to build and run that canal system for the state and roads were done this way and so forth. And, and through a whole complicated process, the corporation sort of slowly gets disentangled from the state in the 19th century so that by 1935, we can imagine corporations that 
are no longer state functions. Yeah, one of the wild things is learning that early corporations had to go to states and say, can we be a corporation? And the states would be like, justify why? Like, tell us why. <laughs> you know, what public good are you serving? It's just a, a wild inversion of things. And also another another piece of this is, and, and maybe this doesn't come into it as much until um, the Austrian economists that get brought over in, and I guess this would be in the 60s, kind of 50s and 60s, Hayek and uh, the other one whose name is not coming to my mind. Yeah, but th but this idea that not only is business freedom core to American freedom, but the role of the business person, businessman, I guess they always said back then, is explicitly not to be decent, not to be good, solely to make money. So th the idea is that if you have these like purely self-interested actors, the magic of aggregating them <laughs> produces social good, but the individual not only has no obligation to do public good with their business or their corporation, in a sense, they're sort of like violating the spirit of capitalism if they do it, which again is like would send Adam Smith rolling in his grave. Or if you could just say a little bit about the sort of how they conceive of the morality of the business person or, or, or the morality of business and how that changed from what Adam Smith laid out. So that invention of what we now call shareholder value, we can trace really back to Chicago School economist. It's mostly popularized by Milton Friedman, though he didn't concoct the term. Um, and the idea is in his 1962 book, Capitalism and Freedom. It actually is, he, he takes a more extreme view of that than the Austrian economists did. Um, Hayek, for example, actually thought there was grounds for workmen's rights of some kind, um, and that there were some justifiable kinds of social mitigations of industrial freedom, as, as, as did Adam Smith. Yet Friedman's ideals are what take over in the course of the 70s and early 80s. I, th I think it's in, in, 19, it's in the 1980s that the idea really takes off around General Electric Corporation, for example. Um, those of us of a certain age remember Neutron Jack just dismantling General Electric um, and removing the basic ideas that the company had served in the 30s and 40s, for example, of investing in its community um, in order to have healthy communities around its plants and so forth. Um, and all that goes away in that era of the, the 80s. Um, and so you can see, for example, in the movie Wall Street, if anybody remembers that from the 80s, um, there's a great speech about Teledar Paper by Michael Douglas and how it exists only to serve its shareholders. And that's where all the profits should go. And its only social good should be ensuring the continued flow of finance to the shareholders. And every, all other good things are supposed to fall out of that. Except what actually fell out of that is workers' livelihoods and so forth. It's a fascinating reinvention. Um, and in fact, as we begin to bring those Austrian ideas into the U.S., in the 30s and 40s, they become simplified and they become oversimplified as they're put through the businessman cycle because the businessmen in the United States were simply unwilling to accept even the social protections that, that Hayek and Adam Smith and so forth had thought were necessary in that decades. And so they, they commission um, economists to essentially rewrite Hayek. Globalization goes with this, too, because the more you're a multinational company, the less pretense or need you have to pretend like you need to nurture a particular community, right? You just go find, if one falls apart, you just go find cheap workers somewhere else. Another thing the book really brought home that I did not fully appreciate, I mean, I guess I knew, I knew just from being a journalist that, you know, business is out there advocating for leave us alone, but I don't think I appreciated the scale and how long, <laughs> how long that's been going on. I mean, your book sort of describes waves starting in the late 19th century of government would try to do some decent thing. There'd be a huge propaganda effort against it. Finally, government would win some new protection for workers. Then business turns around, claims moral credit for the protection against workers <laughs> and, and argues against the new thing that's about to happen via billions of dollars of propaganda over and over. There's like three or four waves of this. So maybe just like talk a little bit about how extensive 
this effort was, uh, you know, like they're going after schools and libraries, morning cartoons. I mean, <laughs> they really thought it through about, <laughs> about how to go wide. Well, so we started the book with child labor laws in the 19th century because it, it's, it's the beginning of the conversion of the National Association of Manufacturers from what had originally been a very protectionist organization. They were founded not at all for free markets. They were founded to promote tariffs, the idea being that tariff walls would protect American manufacturing during the, the period in which the United States developed. And they begin turning against the idea of, of government itself around the issue of child labor and workplace safety, because those things both threaten to cost them money in various ways. Um, they used child labor in order to reduce wages, and they used, well, frankly, they managed to convince the courts that workplace safety problems were actually the fault of the workers and not themselves. Um, and so there's a long fight by reformers in the United States to both provide better workplace protections and to eliminate child labor that ultimately businesses lose and then basically change their tune and decide that, well, we supported removal of child labor all along. Um, and, and so that's sort of the first wave of the story. Um, and kind of that first wave takes, you know, it, it set in in the 1930s and then in the, then the NAM changes actually kind of fundamentally in the 30s um, for a very internalist sort of reasons. The National Association of Manufacturers had originally largely represented small businesses, not large. They have a leadership change in the 30s, um, in which essentially they're taken over by large manufacturers. And then those large man and much wealthier manufacturers begin to believe that it's in their interests to try to change the political tone of the United States and World War II really helps them show how. Um, the Roosevelt administration engaged in an enormous public propaganda campaign to support the war. And our manufacturing friends learn a whole lot about how to spread messages. And we don't get into it a great deal in the book because there's, there's so much material. Um, but, for example, I pick up with a story of a, a congregationalist minister in, in Los, Los Angeles. becomes quite famous nationwide for setting up an organization known as Spiritual Mobilization. Spiritual Mobilization's idea was to try to reconvince Americans you know, of the moral basis for free market capitalism. Um, and to spread that through the churches. He was a minister. He attracted, of course, the interest of the National Association of Manufacturers, very key to our story. Um, and in particular, one of their leaders um, by the name of J. Howard Pugh, um, who was president of Sun Oil. And Pugh becomes Fifield's biggest backer and for spiritual mobilization. Spiritual mobilization operates throughout World War II, actually and into the 1950s. And they tried to develop curriculum to push out into seminaries, um, as well as putting materials out into churches and so forth for free market ideals. Now, it's important to understand that as a congregationalist, Fifield was a theological liberal and J. Howard Pugh was not. He was very much a theological conservative, so he takes that idea in 1946 and he starts founding new organizations to do the same thing, but into the conservative churches. Um, and so the Christian Freedom Foundation was one of his creations. The magazine Christianity Today is one of his creations. He attracts Norman Vincent Peale from the First Marble Church and so on. And he becomes an enormously successful interpreter of the idea of shoving free market capitalist views into American religion. And that's just one thread of the propaganda story that we tell. Yeah, I was going to say it's creepy enough trying to sort of conflate free market capitalism with America, you know, with America's founding and America's founding values. But then it gets conflated with Christianity. They get merged in a way that only has gotten creepier and creepier over, <laughs> over time. I frequently look around today at various and sundry propaganda campaigns still ongoing and wish to myself that the institutions we have set up to seek truth and accuracy, namely academia, and journalism would be more stalwart in their resistance to propaganda campaigns. <laughs> and, you know, it's tempting for, for people in the present day to say, oh, what's happened to the media? You know, what happened to the old media? But you read through your book and you sort of realize, like, 
oh, academia and journalism were never particularly, they didn't put up a very good fight, let's say, against all this stuff. No, one of the sto- another of the stories we tell, again, about the breadth of these campaigns is around the National Electric Light Association, which doesn't exist anymore. It folded um, after its propaganda campaign was exposed. This, this is an organization that existed into the 1920s. Like the National Association of Manufacturers, it took up the um, effort to prevent regulation of the electrical utility industry. And one of the ways they did it was by paying academics to author studies that they could use to prove, quote-unquote, that privately provided electrical power was cheaper and more reliable than publicly provided and produced power, Um, except there was lots of evidence that that wasn't true for both Europe and Canada, which not only tended to have cheaper electricity rates, but also much more widespread electrification. One of the things that we've all forgotten by now, because we were almost all, maybe all of us were born after electrification is completed, but in the United States, electrification stalled at the city borders. And it stalled at the city borders for decades because utilities figured it simply wasn't profitable for them to string lines across rural America. But yeah, Europe, Europe beat us to rural electrification. I, didn't, I don't think I really knew that before I read Yeah. That. Well, most people have forgotten. Um, but they beat us to rural electrification because they saw it, well, in a couple of different ways. One was program of improvement. But another big one was, remember, there really was a threat Um, of the communists and socialists taking over in Europe. Um, And that was, of course, used as a foil here in the United States, too. But what the European politicians did was they simply decided, well, we're going to take on some of the claims of the reformers and actually do them in order to forestall the revolution. Um, and and you know, Bismarck was actually pretty successful for a while, um, and many other other of the European countries were were successful at more than a little while. And we kind of tell that story too. But to answer your question, is there were paid academics then as well um, who were not only not attempting to get at the truth, but were fairly well. I would say that they had already been indoctrinated. They already believed that free market, such if it, you can even say such a thing existed, was the, the, the proper way. The real, I would say, the better way to say it really is private enterprise is a better way to do it. It's a better frame. One thing I haven't said yet, but I want to make sure I do, is that Naomi and I don't believe there's such a thing as a free market. Markets are constructs. They're social constructs. We Birds and bees and so forth don't have them. We all have... We all regulate markets in some way, either by law or by the guys that break your knees if you don't pay up. Mm-hmm. They're all forms of market regulation, and some are preferable to others. <laughs> yeah, and they bought off so many editors and newspapers, too, in, the, in just like the chintiest ways. You know, they just mail them a pamphlet or like take them out to dinner, and like, boom, they got great press coverage. It was very, it's very disheartening. But I would even say that they didn't have to be bought off necessarily. I mean, partly that social pressure you're talking about, which we've all experienced, being invited to the right parties and so yeah. forth. And you know, we don't really get into that because sociology is not our subject. But it's also the case that many of these editors were raised in the same propaganda, especially nowadays, were raised in the same propagandized milieu that everybody mm-hmm. else was. And it's hard to decide that, you know, all these things you've been taught for most of your life are wrong. It's very hard to decide that. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sure that most of what I've been taught through most of my life is sort of true, at least, but I'm not always sure. And I have to think hard about it nowadays. <laughs> One thing that comes across also is big business has been organized and at this for a long time, well over a century now, but they weren't really successful for a while. Like they fought and fought and fought against the new deal, but the new deal mostly went forward and mostly remained popular. And they just, it's like wave after wave of propaganda until around like the seventies Carter era and Reagan era. So what, what converged there in history to allow this to break out from basically being kind of a fringe view to like it's common sense now, sort of common wisdom, you know, meddlesome bureaucrats and government inefficiency and picking winners. These are all phrases that ordinary people know now, sort of sifted down into the popular consciousness now. So what was it that allowed it to finally 
overwhelm resistance and, and, and win? Well, I think the first thing um, we've already said, we've had this decades long propaganda campaign that that helped lay the groundwork. And that's the main subject of our book. And then part two is the 70s. We have a whole series of intersecting crises in the United States. Um, and we talk about the, the inflation of the 70s from the economic perspective being that big crisis. And the advantage that the free marketeers had was that they had an answer that was different than the standard answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and Naomi and I are not the first to think about it this way. They, they had a different answer than the economics of the last 40 years, um, which had been successful, um, maintained a relatively growing and prosperous economy, much more prosperous for, how do I want to put it, more equitable prosperity than what we had now or prior to World War II, frankly. Um, and yet that seemed to be breaking down in the 70s. Um, and so that's the way we see it. And because they had an answer and because, you know, Carter then has, of course, a great foreign policy crisis as well. Um, and honestly, I think Jimmy Carter believed some of the free market mantra um, in that, you know, his administration really launches the, the era of deregulation, right? It's, it's the Carter administration that undoes airline regulation and trucking regulation and begins undoing rail regulation. And there's, uh, there's even banking deregulation in the Carter administration. And so he, they begin getting rid of some, a, a lot of, in fact, of the leftover artifacts of the New Deal in the Carter administration. Um, and what Naomi and I do is we discuss that, um, what was done, what effects they began to have. And, and honestly, to some degree, we're supporters of it, except there's one place that we think they went wrong, really. And that is they didn't apply labor protections that um, had existed under the New Deal laws. Mm. So trucking, for example, and that's their kind of the, the poster child for deregulation because 10 years after the trucking deregulation law, most of the trucking unions had collapsed. Most of the trucking businesses that had existed had collapsed and they'd been reformed into new non-union trucking organizations. Wages collapsed and so on. Um, and so deregulation helped reduce the inflationary period you know, trucking is a major expense to move stuff around, but at the same time, it also crushed wages, um, which benefits inflation, but not the workers, <laughs> and so on. So that's that's our, our story of the conversion, and I'm sure you could write others, because we could, in the couple of chapters we had, we could barely scratch the surface <laughs> of, of what it was, I think, a very complex and challenging period. I know you're a historian, so history is your thing. But as you look around now, maybe you and Naomi have talked about this, do you feel like the hold of kind of the free market mythology is loosening? Like, where do you do you think we're heading in another direction now? What's what's your take on the current state of this? Because it seemed to sort of hit its peak in sort of like Bill Clinton, you know, when you got a Democratic president saying the era of big government is over, you've sort of like won, at that point, you've won the argument. Where do you think we are now with all this stuff? Boy, I wish I knew. <laughs> Being a historian, we're, we're bad at crystal ball kinds of things. <laughs> um, it's certainly interesting to me that the current president and his predecessor are not free marketeers. Neither of them, but in quite different ways, right? <laughs> Trump was Trump is still backers of kind of Reagan-style deregulation, you know, gutting environmental agencies and that sort of thing. He did those kinds of things, but at the same time um, was almost doing the 19th century idea of, of tariff protectionism. Yeah, really old right? school. Old really, school old, really old school. Um, almost, uh, so I know some people have called it neo-feudalism. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't see it that way. But then again, uh, since I'm a 20th century guy, there wasn't a lot of feudalism for me to mm-hmm. study. So maybe I'm wrong. But I do find it intriguing that that it's no longer the default position of either party, that the idea of unregulated markets are to continue to be dominant. But what comes next? I don't know. That's the challenging and and, and terrifying part to some degree. (laughs) Yeah, and neither of them seem to get much internal pushback from their own party over that. No, exactly. There there doesn't seem to be like an organized presence for it anymore. There's Right, and instead it's... um, 
it's patchwork, but that's not the word I want. It's um, uh, more a matter of what, what they perceive to be immediate self-interest at the party level. And so there's lots of discussion now of big tech regulation. Um, and it, to some degree, I would support it depending on the details, but it's not clear to me what that would be, for example. And, and it's... And, it's it's an interesting political moment to live in. Antitrust is sort of poking its head up again. Yeah, we might actually enforce little, antitrust statutes for the bit. first time in decades. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> Final question, and this is my plaintive question I ask everyone, and especially when, you, you know, like I, I spend a lot of time talking about the media environment and the sort of epistemic environment and Fox and the right-wing media and all, all of this misinformation and stuff. But... One thing I'm constantly lamenting or wondering about is why when you look back over this 150-year period almost and you see these repeated waves of propaganda against government, basically, Mm -hmm. against government as such, not against this or that in particular, but just government is bad, (laughs) like government's inefficient and bad, wave after wave. Why do liberals or progressives or whatever you want to call them, why does the left, why do the people who believe that government can improve people's lives, as it demonstrably has many times through our history, where are their propaganda campaigns? Like where, where is the think tank that's just devoted to arguing that government is good? You know, I can name 10 on the right that are devoted purely to the subject of how government is bad, is there one on the left that's just government is good as opposed to, you know, this immigration group and this crime group or whatever? Why does the side of social democracy, mixed capitalism, the, the stuff that seems to work, <laughs> why does it not have a propaganda arm or effort or why does it never seem to fight for itself as such? Do you have an answer to that question? I don't have a good answer. I mean, the usual joke you get is that they just don't have the money. And maybe that's true. But I think there's actually a better argument in, in another book. And I'm, I'm really hoping the name of this author comes to me. But I, unfortunately, I, this, I read this. It was published after we'd finished our manuscript. But there's an argument about back in the 1970s that the consumer's rights movement undermined precisely that argument because the government was so complicit in allowing itself to be used by corporate lobbyists because the corporate lobbyists had been so successful and ensuring regulations were written in ways that benefited the incumbents, right? The existing, you know, big three car manufacturers and so forth. Um, and I can remember when we were doing the book tour, for, what little book tour we had for Merchants of Doubt. I was up in, I think, Alberta province in Canada. And I wish I knew who this was, but I was talking to an economist over a beer um, who told me a great story about um, one of the Carter administration's um, economists. And, and the person I was talking to was, was saying that really, it's not that he believed in free markets. It's that he believed that corporations could rig government to do essentially whatever they want, to, to use the government to build their mon- and sustain their own monopolies. And the only solution to this was to sweep away all the rules. <laughs> the problem with that is that then you have to keep doing that, right? Because every generation of corporate titan gets the rules written again to protect <laughs> itself. Um, and I mean, that was the only... I could see in that argument. But to go back to your question, the problem that liberal activists would have is that, because a lot of people on the left, I think, actually agree with that. And I even think that there's merit to it, because I've seen it so often in my own research career. Um, Corporations do get state and federal governments to write rules that benefit them. And so that undermines the whole notion of a pro-government propaganda campaign, right? Because maybe it's just that all of the leftists have very mixed feelings about it. (laughs) And and maybe, and honestly, I think we should. I don't want to say, one of the things I hope you will get out of our book is that we're not saying that all corporations are bad or that the government is always good because neither of those positions are true. They're not. Okay. Well, I'd love to hear from the audience. Let me just say 
this is a subject about which I feel many people will be tempted to have more of a comment than a question. And I just want to get out ahead of that and say, if you have comments, save them for afterwards. Uh, You can talk to us afterwards. People came to hear Eric talk, so try to keep your questions concise. Uh, yeah, just come on up to the podium uh, uh, if you have questions, or if not, I'm going to keep asking them. I have a process rather than content question. <laughs> so I'm a retired oceanographer. I'm familiar with your co-authors' work in the scientific field. So it's kind of a dual question of you guys seem to be stepping out of your area of technical and scientific expertise into the economic world. And I'm curious about the process of how the two of you work together on this. Okay, so we did the book because we wanted to follow up Merchants of Doubt, um, in which, if you're not familiar, was really a history of four physicists and how they spent their retirement careers um, working to cast doubt about the truth of environmental problems. And what we concluded was that they were believers in market fundamentalism, the idea that that only free markets could protect political freedom. In other words, basically a, a 1980s version of the tripod of freedom from 1935. And so in this book, we wanted to tell the history of market fundamentalism. Can so that's why we did it. Can you tell us who we is? Oh, sorry, Naomi Oreskes. Um, <laughs> okay. She's the lead author in the book, I'm, and, and, and I'm Eric. Um, <laughs> process. So I guess I'm the one who had spent a lot of time or a lot more time in economic history initially um, because I'm a historian of technology. And you really can't separate technology from business and and, and, and economics to a lesser degree. Um, so I guess to some degree you can blame me for the initial ideas. And then once we had sort of gotten the book proposal sold, process was we separate the chapters, figure out who's doing what, um, whose expertise is more aligned to one idea or the other. Um, and then it's a whole lot of researching and writing and mailing chapter drafts back and forth and so on. Um, kind of the, the early core of the book is built around material from the Hagley uh, archives, which it, it's business history li- uh, library and archives on the <coughs> DuPont family estate in Delaware. The DuPont family did did history of the United States an enormous favor, frankly, in, in turning over some of their original powder factory buildings to be a business history archive. Um, and that's how I can tell you exactly what J. Howard Pugh was doing in setting up these, these organizations, because he was proud of it. He wrote to people about it. He, um, he, he helped get a textbook by a, a, an economist by the name of Tarshis um, removed from university curriculum on grand claims to trustees and so forth that, that the guy was a communist when actually he was just a Keynesian economist. And that prepared the way for Paul Samuelson's textbook to become the dominant textbook in, in American economic education for, for most of our lifetimes. But Samuelson, seeing what happened at Tarshish, revised it to make it satisfactory to the market fundamentalists who'd gone after Tarshish. Um, and, and Samuelson told us that story. But we can know these things because archives exist, and, and, and sometimes even the people that we criticize are the people that made it possible for us to know that. Yeah, they don't come across in the book, as any of them, as particularly bashful or embarrassed about the fact that they're, they're proud of waging it. massive propaganda campaigns. No, they're proud of it because they believe in what they're doing. I, I have an, another question, which uh, maybe is more philosophical, but... This is something I've gone back and forth over the years, too, which is at no point from the late 19th century forward, really at no point ever, are any of these business titans who are waging these propaganda campaigns acting consistently according to free market principles. All of them happily welcome subsidies when, when subsidies are available. All of them will happily tax their competitors. All of them, none of them ever in history have turned down something that would benefit them on the basis of free market principle. So you could make the argument that what's going on here is about power. They have power and the microphones and the money. They don't even really believe the arguments. So in a sense, 
the only thing that can counteract that insofar as you view it as a bad thing is counter power. And in a sense, arguing as though sincere ideas are in the driver's seat here is kind of like a bait and switch. Like they're like they're, I feel like they just laugh when we go off and like write arguments and, and, and research things and care about facts, you know, like, they're, like they're just playing us, you know, like they don't, they don't care about the facts. They're just exercising power. Do you ever, you know, how central is the argument to all this and how much of it is just a cover for corporate power that can only be sort of restrained by power? Well, first off, self-interest is fundamental to their depiction of free market capitalism, right? They, they, one thing they certainly internalize is that everyone acts in their own self-interest, including themselves, and they happen to be in a position to use their power to maximize their self-interest, even if it harms others. So you can argue that they are actually acting according to principle. <laughs> it just isn't a very satisfactory answer, right? Yeah, well, it's not a free market principle, right? It's, just it's not a free market principle. principle. Of self-interest. Yes, that's right. That's right. It's not really a free market principle. So you can see, for example, in the paper of J. Howard Pugh, and he's writing to Rose Wilder Lane, the daughter of Laura, Laura Ingalls Wilder, he goes through some contortions at times to defend his own, or what she perceives to be his own, violations of, of, of principle. Because whereas J. Howard Pugh was willing to compromise to improve his standing, in a lot of ways, Lane wasn't. She really was a, a, an ideologue. And, well, she kind of drives herself out of the movement, in, in a sense, because she's more extreme than they were and, and continue to be. So it gives you an example that there actually were people even inside for a while, even inside this, this, this conservative movement, who were principled and would actually manage to drive themselves away because they wouldn't make those compromises. But they're not the ones that had power, or rather they retained power, as you say, because they were acting in the, the, the those that remained were acting more in the interests of power than in pursuit of the free market principles. Mm-hmm. So again, I keep saying that, that, that there's no such thing as a free market. There's always a regulated market. And it's just how and by whom that we're talking about. Well, to this day, I think there are like seven true libertarians (laughs) somewhere, somewhere in DC who are constantly pained by their betrayal by Mm -hmm. the Republican party, which is coming up on 150 years. Now you'd think they would see the next one coming, but still, hi. So I'm a little bit outside of my element here because I've not read the book. But usually in a big myth, and I, I look forward to it, that you and Naomi Oreskes have, have written, what, are, what were the little myths? What are the little myths? And can you articulate them that are backing up that big myth? I mean, we can, we can come to our own conclusions, but can you articulate those? Oh, they're legion. Um, well, I kind of told you one. There's the tripod of freedom. That's a set of mythologies that the National Association of Manufacturers concoct in 1935. The idea that that industrial freedom um, has anything to do with the Bill of Rights is laughable. It just doesn't exist there any more than the, the, the kind of a maximalist interpretation of property rights. My character, Fifield, um, to give you another example of a myth, tries very, very hard in his campaigns to bring the clergy around to the idea that property rights are sacred, that they descend from God um, and not from the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution, which makes them, um, if you if you ever bother to read it, modifiable by act of law, which, you know, we can't modify God by act of law. So, there's another myth. The individualist mythology is another one. And we don't explicitly criticize that in the book. It's already too big a book. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but rugged individualism is another area of mythology that is built into this idea of the free market in the 30s and 40s. Um, so there are a whole s- network of sub-myths that go into uh, what they are. What we don't do is we don't make give you a, a typology, you know, a chart of all the different sub-myths. And we just didn't think about the problem that way. We were, we were trying to tell you partly a story um, and partly a well-evidenced history and less um, 
rigorous philosophical analysis, I guess you could say. Yeah, well, one, one thing that comes across is, you know, you'd like to think there's a, a marketplace of ideas. <laughs> Speaking of myths, it's a marketplace of ideas where, yeah. where ideas compete uh, based on their, on their rigor. But of course, like these ideas were at every juncture um, very well funded like, and, and, and pushed. And I always thought it's not hard to it's not hard to understand why rich, powerful people in society welcome a philosophy that characterizes success in a market as a matter of heroic overcoming individual <laughs> effort. I mean, of course, the people who won want to believe that, right? In that sense, it's it's in it's in a tradition of hundreds of years of mythologies that mainly serve to justify the place of the people in charge. Well, so I guess there's two stories built into that question. In the marketplace of ideas, you know, Milton Friedman didn't rise to the top in a free market because mm-hmm. the Chicago School of Economics program was built on the funding of a of a foundation, the Volcker Foundation, um, which was run by a gentleman by the name of Harold Lunau. And it's it's their money that got the Chicago School's free market program going um, and supported Friedrich Hayek um, there at the School of Social Thought. And around which got it was into built. Reader's mm-hmm. Digest, which I thought was just an oh, excellent okay. detail. Well, yes. And so it, this is the power of money, right? Because not only could they afford to support faculty members for a decade or two to get the free market ideals built into academia, they could spread them through cartoons and so forth, right? So none of us live in a, a, a free marketplace of ideas anyways, because money can boost the ideas that people with money want boosted. And Milton Friedman's a great example of of how that came about. So marketplace of ideas, well, it's a very rigged market, much (laughs) like General Electric's electricity markets. Much like all markets. Yeah, Yeah, he he brought up Milton Friedman, so shock therapy, right? Um, Yeah. Right, all over the world, or especially South America. But I wanted to ask you, you're a historian. I mean, the more you read, you can become depressed. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, one one question to one question to you about could potentially the reason why there is no thorough backlash or a fight against this propaganda is because a lot of the intellectual stuff that we learn about just um you know they're so wrapped up in the hypocrisy of all the stuff that we've done as a society including propaganda capitalism that they you know they're just like useless like that they can't Germany, they can't form into this type of backlash that you're talking about. Well, your your colleague up here. What do you think about that? I would say that they have a, would have a hard time selling it here. Um, I'll take back to that idea. Remember, I told you this story briefly about about Laurie Tarshish being having his textbook suppressed by a propaganda campaign and aimed at trustees of universities and so forth in the 1950s, and therefore Samuelson's textbook becoming dominant. That's an American story, and it largely didn't happen in the rest of the world. So economics programs in Europe are much more intellectually diverse than they are here, because that kind of story didn't happen, right? The the rigged market here resulted in one outcome, a very, very similar thought throughout most of, of American economic academics, um, and which is not really so much true in, in Europe. Now, the question was about the public, but ideas generally have to come from somewhere, right? And if, if all the economic departments in the United States basically think the same way, then where do the ideas get started? In left-wing think tanks, there's not very many of those, Mm -hmm. as we were discussing earlier. And they start out from a position of less credibility precisely because they're think tanks, right? There's no independent work on that, that that kind of going on. There's no liberal um, uh, little house on the prairie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's not that either. So I would say to you that part of the problem is it, you, you start out with having fewer ideas that can be marketed, and then you don't have the infrastructure for marketing them. To, to get the change across that you might want. But again, that's, that's beyond our subject. Other people have written about the think tank world than, than, than not us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm curious, in your research for this book, whether you came across any industries where deregulation and free market ideas actually made a more equitable or efficient outcome. You talked about how 
like the electricity market, it's not a good market for free market principles. But I'm curious whether you've researched anything where it did improve it. Well, so efficiency is a difficult term because efficiency is often, well, the definition of efficiency matters, doesn't it? If you're talking about cost effectiveness, for example, it's much more cost effective to buy property in poor neighborhoods or near poor neighborhoods and make them dumps, right? So they often, efficiency often leads to inequity. And so we don't often see efficiency and equity going hand in hand, at least not in the United States. But to be honest, we weren't looking for that because our story was built around a propaganda campaign by people who weren't interested at all in equity. Not at all. They, they, in fact, they, they discuss, and we, we have a little bit about this um, in, in the Christian capitalism chapter, they openly discuss the idea that, you know, some people really are superior and should rise to the top. And, and equity is simply not, equity is not the American way. So following that thread, we would never have found what you're asking about. So I hope it's true that at some level you can have relative efficiency and relative equity, but that's not what our actors were talking about. Yeah, they very explicitly <laughs> say attempts to improve equity are ipso facto going to suppress economic growth. Like they don't, they don't even allow the possibility that you can do both at once. They, they set them up as yeah. being diametrically opposed. Yeah, which I actually, which I believe anyways, is a fundamental misunderstanding of, of, of Adam Smith's capitalism, right? His basic idea is that the circulation of capital improved everything. But what he meant, I think, was circulation top to bottom, right? The money has to reach the people at the bottom because that's where most people are um, and improve their lives. And that's what drives the system. If you have the concentration of wealth at the top, then it becomes not only less equitable, it becomes a less efficient and less generative economy. But that's me. I think a great many economists don't think in terms of top to bottom circulation of wealth. It's more circular in their minds or, or something. But I don't think that's what Smith meant. The concentration of wealth strikes me as being less effective long term, and it's certainly less stable. I'm sure I've got more questions, though. So um, it's certainly easy to be cynical about corporations talking about ESG, but overall, would you say that the increasing talk about an emphasis on ESG is a, a bit of a backlash to some of this uh, capitalism and free market mythology, or is it pure whitewashing? Oh, wish I, I wish I knew, but being a historian, I... Even the present is blurry to me. It's easier to see the past in a lot of ways. But it's, it seems to me, at one level, a welcome response to the shareholder value idea in which the company only has the interests of its shareholder at stake. And, and the ESG movement strikes me as being at least better than that, that there is some, some other set of interests and values at stake there. Um, I hope it's not all whitewashing, or greenwashing, rather, as the term goes. But um, like I said, I, I don't study the present particularly strongly. So people ask me questions like, you know, what are what are the best companies for environmental things? And I have no idea. None whatsoever. It's worth, <laughs> it's worth pointing out, though, that as we speak, the usual suspects are mounting an enormous, very well-funded propaganda campaign against ESG specifically. Like there's the Republican states passing yeah. laws against it like there. So it's real enough to cause them to mobilize against, I guess. So it's something. Yeah. Uh, comment question. Mm -hmm. Since 1968, I'm looking at the Gini coefficient from the uh, FRED database here. Uh, it's risen from 38.6 to 49, which is incredibly high measure of uh, inequality. And since that time, there's been six different agencies added to the federal government and you discussed heavily on we don't have a free market and we have a very strong governmental regulatory capture system. How do we get, overcome that? And uh, the, probably the biggest beneficiary we see today is the world's richest man, Elon Musk, with SpaceX, with governmental money. We've got uh, all kinds of 
carbon capture systems uh, with these batteries and his new cars. All we're doing, we're just handing him money. And isn't government the problem there? I mean, you have you talk about this. Okay, that's, and, I, I think we got it. I think we got it. What do you think, Eric? Absolutely, we have a less and less equitable society, um, and we don't spend a lot of the book trying to figure out what's at fault there. Personally, I would blame capital gains tax more than just Elon Musk or the expansion of or the addition of federal agencies. Um, don't get me started on Musk because I have always seen him as being any, nothing really but a successful harvester of, of federal dollars and also a really good propagandist until recently. Um, I, he's really I, off his I, game he's, lately. He's really, yes. He, he, he used to be good at the whole fanboy thing and, and, and maybe he still is and I'm just left the family. I don't know. But regulatory capture, real problem, um, can you know? we throw in the Supreme Court removing all limits on, 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 finance on campaign spending. finance? And again, at least throw that in there. If, if you don't like corporate capture, then yeah. you... That's another... Again, we don't go there in the book. It's already too big a book. <laughs> um, but yes, the equation of money and speech is a whole other level of, of corporate capture, right? It doesn't just allow unlimited lobbying spending, but an unlimited political advertising spending. Um, and that just reinforces the the propaganda power of of things. Um, and I guess I would say to back to the original question, I actually don't know how you break the cycle here. It's one of those things where historians can help you diagnose the world way the world is, but not necessarily help you fix it. Um, because I don't know how to undo the equation of money and speech. I don't know how you build a government that can't be captured somehow. But, I mean, there are governments out there in the world that are more competent, that are yes. less that are less wasteful, that are less captured. Like, there are better and worse administrative states. So, at the very least, you can do better than we're doing. Yeah, that's right. And so, one of the things we intended to do with the book, and ultimately didn't because we decided other people were already writing about it, is that the idea that there are varieties of capitalism... And the Europeans practice much different varieties, by and large, than we do. Um, and, and that is wrapped up in the kinds of states they have built, right? And that just takes us back to the idea that there aren't actually any free markets. Markets are embedded in states. Um, they're embedded in particular cultures. And those can, things can be changed. It's just a question of... So what I pose to my audience is a question really is what kind of state versus slash market do we want? Because we're the ones that have to choose and then have to figure out how to make the politicians do what we want. And that's a tough road to haul, particularly when we have this basic problem of, of the equation of money and speech. And therefore, mm -hmm. the richest man in the world gets to decide who gets heard. Um, and by on about what? <laughs> and uh, I'll get to your question in one second, but I also just wanted to throw in that some of these big states that have huge taxes and robust welfare programs actually have the freest markets, like a Finland or whatever. They have fewer regulations on business. They have enormous taxes and enormous, you know, redistribution. But but the business sector itself is relatively free compared to ours. So we're not even getting the <laughs> we're not even getting the free. <laughs> The free market were promised, much less all the rest of it. All right, final final question. So let, I'll get historical. Uh, 60, 70 years back, the straw man of communism gets beaten to death for a couple of decades. And to what role did business, American big business, play in that, that particular uh, bonfire? Or was there another path? Or, or was that whole... Anti-communism deal more of a invention of the wealthy. Well, so it goes. The anti-communist crusade of the business community goes back well into the 19th century, because they were terrified of the communist potential revolution of, of I mean, eliminating private business. Um, so they were always leaders of the anti-communist charge, and they used that 
as a foil to oppose unionization. Um, they would use it to oppose, they did in fact use it to oppose child labor laws because it was taking children away from their families and making them wards of the state and so on. I mean, we tell all that story. So that's, that's, it's been, that rhetoric, that anti-communist rhetoric has been a big business rhetoric um, for more than a century. They were fundamental to helping spread that that set of ideas through, throughout the United States for for longer than any of us have been around. Yeah, there's another thing I, I discovered through the book is, is how far back the knee-jerk response of socialism goes. They were using that from the jump. <laughs> I didn't know how recent that, that was. It turns out that's been all the way through. It's been a universal curse now for conservatives for more than a century. It's lost, as far as I can see, any meaning or any relationship to what, <laughs> what the socialists actually originally wanted or intended. <laughs> All right. What was last question? Oh, yeah, you yeah, sneak one of, more in. Yeah, kind of a quick. I mean, there's a lot of corporations that one would argue do a lot of good things. Like, like Boeing has been a corporation that's provided an immense amount of jobs and pensions. And, you know, it's our, a lot of our economy. But, and then you could argue that corporations just need you know, regulation by government to be good, to create wealth. But I guess my question is, as a historian, what countries in the world have done a better job than the United States on all these things we're talking about? I mean, it's good to criticize all this stuff, and it's, it's definitely lots to criticize. But <laughs> what, are there any countries that stand out as an example of what we should be more like? Well, first I want to say again, I... I I don't want to come across with the idea that all corporations are bad or that everything corporations do is bad um, because there's markets are tools. There are constructs and they can be very powerful tools for positive things when they're well run. And the second thing I would say is that it's also a mistake to think that government can do everything. Boeing was run by engineers for, for about half a century and that Boeing did enormously positive things by and large. I used to study aviation history, um, and they're still around because actually for a long time they didn't have a lot of military contracts. They managed to survive on on just commercial businesses, which almost nobody in aerospace did. And, I mean, that's a positive thing. And as, as you were saying, help really build this city. Um, and well, 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 that's a whole other story. <laughs> yeah, well, Boeing bought Douglas or Douglas bought Boeing with Boeing's money or something. Yeah. Anyway, but so, so where I wanted to go with that was that I wish we could also talk about corporate culture changing because in what you see in Germany, for example, is the corporations, the corporate leaders don't fight particularly hard against their unions. Um, they have a different, completely different, really, set of social contracts there um, in which, you know, they still are very productive, um, and yet they don't have the very hostile labor management relationships that we do. And that's fundamentally, to me, about the internal culture of corporations and also what business leaders are taught in business schools and economics departments and so forth. Um, so again, I don't want to, you to convince you that the government is always right or that the government is the only thing that can save us, but there are a lot of changes that, that would need to be made, one of which is corporate culture. Um, another, of course, is would be a, a better culture of public service in, in the government because a lot of the government either stopped doing its regulatory job, like mm -hmm. FERC in the, the, the California energy crisis in 2000 mm -hmm. decided, well, it just wasn't going to regulate. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a failure of, of the idea of service, public service, too, as well as corporate penetration of, of companies. I mean, that's a classic example of Enron, Enron out there propagandizing for markets and yeah. just rigging Unregulated them up, markets. One, up one side and down the other, like the, the farthest thing from a free market participant you can imagine. What about employee-owned? The question was about yeah. uh, what about employee-owned corporations? What I'd say is a little bit of a dodge of the question because I don't know a lot about the longevity of such companies or what kinds of goods or bads that they do. But what I would say is that we, 
Um, again, our study was really of propaganda, um, and we have this idea of private free markets, and yet we live in a, in a very mixed economy. As you say, there are not just shareholder-owned companies, there are worker-owned companies. There are nonprofit companies all over the place. I, I actually work for one. Um, so that's not the free market mantra we're talking about is not the whole story of America. Um, and, and sometimes we, not just Naomi and I, but we all forget that there are other kinds of, of business and capitalism possible. Um, and, and, and that's what I'd say that there are other opportunities to build businesses that aren't shareholder value returns to private shareholders. All right. Uh, thank you, everyone. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Eric, for coming out. Thanks for the book. Thanks for coming. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.